big hack here is to write down when something good happens. Write it down, put it in a vase, in a jar, whatever you've got handy. And when you have those days where things feel like they're absolutely falling apart, you cannot remember why you're continuing on, why you're still fighting, pull those out and read them. You will remember how far you've come and all the good things that you've accomplished since then. You will remember to be proud of yourself and it will help you to have that positive mindset once again. Thank you for tuning in to Hacks and Hobbies with your host, Junaid. We're visited by our amazing guests coming from all walks of life who want to learn their story, their struggles, and their journey on how they got to where they are today. So stick around. In this emotionally powerful episode, I get to speak with Amanda. She shares her extraordinary journey from surviving trauma, abuse, and human trafficking to becoming an author and speaker. Join me as we explore Amanda's resilience, the harsh realities she faced, and the lessons she learned on her path to recovery and empowerment. Prepare to be inspired by this story of triumph over adversity. Today, I have the pleasure of bringing to you Amanda Blackwood. Now, Amanda is an amazing human being. We met at PodFest earlier this year. If you're listening to this in 2024, we met in 2023 at PodFest in Denver. And we just hit it off because lo and behold, she's also a really good friend of my good friend, Ed Squire. We just hit it off. So I'm super excited to bring her on to the podcast. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you so much, Junaid. It's nice to see you again. (laughs) Amen. Amen. And in the green room, we were actually talking about a lot of blessings that are happening for both of us today. And we want to jump into that a little later, but before we get there, you have an amazing story. You have an amazing journey that you've been through. You're an author of several books, right? You're an author, you're a speaker, and I just cannot wait to jump into this conversation. And where do we begin? (laughs) You know, where do you ever begin with something like this? There's a lot to unpack. It's like opening up a suitcase and looking at all the treasure and going, okay, which piece do I reach for first? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. So just go back as far as you want, but want to get an insight into what you do today and how you got here. So one of the things that really propelled me towards all of this was surviving a very difficult and traumatic past. And specifically when it comes to that, what I mean is human trafficking and sport torture. Sport torture really didn't even have a name when I first started trying to talk about what it was that I had survived. And a lot of people didn't understand that. So I had to come up with it with my own term that people would understand what I was, what I meant by it, Mm. just with a couple of very brief words. Um, Sorry, my lighting is going a little wacky. (laughs) So With most survivors of human trafficking, most of us experience a lot of trauma within our childhood homes. I'm no stranger to that. My earliest memories of abuse happened when I was about four years old. The first time I was ever molested, it was by my brother. My father was physically and terribly abusive. My mother was mentally and emotionally abusive. So growing up in this abusive environment, I learned really terrible lessons. I learned that the people who hurt you are the ones who are going to love you. And if they don't hurt you, it means they don't love you. Oh my God. That's a terrible thing to learn. Yeah. 
especially at such a young age. I was four. So all the people that I trusted were all the people who were hurting me and abusing me every single day. And everybody around me other than that was a total stranger. My dad was in the military. We moved around a lot. I had no immediate family anywhere near me. Mm. So this was my world. It was about that time I started to really act out because of the abuse. My mother was convinced there was something wrong with me. And there was this fad back then of getting your kids diagnosed with ADHD. Oh, my God. So she took us in, my brother and I, to the doctors. And the doctors told her that my brother had ADHD, but I didn't. And I was okay. She didn't believe them. So she started taking my brother's Ritalin and breaking it in half and giving it to me every day. Oh my God. At four. At four years old. Because I know I have a five year old and she's amazing, but giving medication that controls your behaviors. Oh my God. Yeah. It's mind altering, it's behavior altering. Mm. And what a lot of people didn't realize back then and still even today is that about 95% of the kids that were diagnosed as ADHD or, or some derivative of that back in the 1980s were actually kids who were dealing with trauma. They were giving us Band-Aids, not solutions. So I was put on this Ritalin when I was four. My mother took me off for a couple of days when I was five so that she could make sure that I was a five-year-old going through a drug withdrawal. So when she took me back into the doctors, they would see there was something wrong with me. And then they would give me my own prescription, which is exactly what happened. Oh, my God. And I took myself off at 15 when I started running away from home. I was done with all the garbage and crap. And I started running away from home. I left the medication behind. And I started to realize that, number one, I was going through a drug withdrawal without even knowing what a drug withdrawal was. and number two. My brain was doing really weird and interesting things. Mm. I was feeling stuff. I was feeling stuff the way a normal kid would feel stuff. But I had a lot of catch up to do because my emotions were so stunted because I was in Ritalin for so long that I had the emotional maturity of about a six or seven year old. So it was really easy to make me cry, wow. which means I was heavily bullied in school at that point. So I started skipping classes, not just not going to school at all. I ended up dropping out of high school two days after I turned 18. I left the state for good. And I decided that I was done with my parents. I was done with my family. I wanted nothing to do with them ever again. So instead, I ended up dating a man who was more than twice my age because can you say daddy issues? Met this guy. Decided I was in love with him. I moved in with him. And within a few months, he had loaned me out as a party favor to his best friend for a birthday party in Las Vegas. And it was the first time I was ever trafficked. I was locked wow. up in a small hotel room in Vegas for 52 hours. I was trafficked three different times, but this was my first experience with it. And it's important to also understand what human trafficking is before we go too much further, because when I describe yeah. it, it doesn't fit with what most people think it looks like. Right. We think of trafficking, we think of my number one question that I get was, how old were you? It's because we have this idea that it only happens to kids. Mm -hmm. People under the age of 18, children, only make up one quarter of all victims. Wow. Most are adults. So we also have this idea that it only happens by kidnapping. So people ask me all the time, oh, were you kidnapped? Oh, my gosh. No, I was not kidnapped. Mm -mm. That makes up one to two percent of all people that are trafficked. Kidnap is one to two percent. Yeah. 
Wow. Most people that are by people they already know and trust and the people that have a sense of authority over their lives. Remember what I was saying about the people who mm-hmm. love me are the ones that are going to hurt me. That's who it usually is. It's parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles, boyfriends and girlfriends. And that's just the way that dark, seedy part of the world works. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Because if somebody's kidnapped, first thing they're going to do is fight for their life. But if you're told to do this because you need me to do this, Mm. you're going to be far more bendable. You're going to be far more manipulatable. So this is... This was my first experience with trafficking. As soon as I got back, I left. I could not wait to get out of there. I went eventually to Florida. I was going to go and stay with my dad's mother. I wanted to get to know my grandmother a bit while I got a surgery done on my knee from a horse farm incident. That's a whole different story. Mm. (laughs) I got down there at about 1030 at night. I was in the Daytona Beach bus station. And I called to have them come and pick me up because I was told to call when you arrive. And I called and my grandmother's husband, my dad's stepfather, answered the phone. And Vic said, we're not coming to get you. You're on your own. Good luck. Okay. I was homeless. Just left you. Just left me. No, thanks. I was in a strange state. I really had never spent much time there. I hadn't been in Florida since I was about four or five years old. That's so, your home state that you went back to? No, that was, we moved around so much. I never really oh, okay. had a home state. Gotcha. That's just where my dad's mother was living at the time. But I went there to go and stay with her and then nothing. I had $5 left in my pocket and I sat down on the curb and I just sobbed. A young couple got off a different bus and they came over and they saw me and they asked me what was wrong. And I somehow, blurted it all out at once and they told me they had a place for me to stay until I could get on my feet what they meant was that they had a place for me to stay until they could find the highest bidder so once they found the highest bidder a guy named Esteban I was locked up in a room for 23 and a half hours with no food no water no bathroom facilities of any kind so the couple saw you crying they're like hey let's lock you up so then we can sell you. They tw- didn't lock me up. The guy that they sold okay. me to did. Okay. Yeah. But they basically let you stay in a place or. Okay. Yeah. They, yeah, they gave me my own room and a blow up air mattress. And the room had the carpet stripped out of it. So it still had carpet nails around the edges. I was constantly oh stepping God. on them and causing like real problems with bleeding in my feet and yeah. tetanus. And yeah, it was not a good time in my life. No. So by the time this guy got a hold of me and locked me up in this room. I was desperate to just make some kind of a change in my life. So when I was growing up in the eighties, my favorite TV show starred Richard Dean Anderson. And it was called MacGyver and MacGyver. A man could fix anything with a paper clip and a rubber band. So I sat down and thought, what would MacGyver do? <laughs> and I MacGyvered my way out of that situation. Yes. I left and I went to California. That was 1999. And how old are you this time? I was 19. Okay. So I eventually made my way out to California and I'm starting my life over and trying to find out who I am. And because I had been so stunned for so long, I was still emotionally trying to catch up as well. Mm. I had a lot of work to do and I didn't know where to start and I couldn't afford to hire somebody to help me to get started. So 2004 is about the age when 
internet dating started becoming a thing. That's mm. when MySpace was a thing. I was all over MySpace and yeah. the social media was my world. I wanted to become the assistant to somebody important because I saw that as being my only way of finding importance in the mm. world. If I was important to somebody else, then that would make me important. And I kept on feeling really hollow. Eventually, I found my way into Hollywood. I was on Alias and Will and Grace and a couple of other things. I did a lot of really cool stuff when I was out there. Nice. I became a mall cop. Alias. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. It was so much fun being on that one. (laughs) Uh, It was, yeah, that that was one of my favorite experiences in all of L.A. For all the years I was there. 14 years I lived in L.A. Beautiful. And... Eventually, with the whole internet dating thing, I met a guy that we knew that we were living too far apart to really have anything, but we were going to be friends anyway. And he saw me as I was working my way through the world, and I told him everything, shared everything with him. He knew all about my past. He saw me the day that I became a mall cop. I was a mall cop. Yep, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And he was a great coach to me, even long Mm. distance, because he was a police officer. So he was able to guide me through a lot of legalities and understanding certain things and what the right thing to do was in certain situations. Because of him, I was able to bust bust open a massive embezzlement ring. Wow. And within five months of starting my job, I took over as the director of public safety and security for that property and later on took on several more also. Nice. At the end of this, I got an $11,000 a year raise. I got raises for all of my employees. It was unbelievable what I was able to do. During all of this time, this had been a period of about seven years from when we met. During this time, he had come to visit me. I had gone up to visit him. And he finally asked me, he said, I'm in love with you. I think you're such an amazing person. I want to spend my life with you. Get a fiance visa. And move here to Scotland to be with me. It took him seven years to get me there. And it took him seven days to start trafficking me. Wow. It was my last experience of being trafficked. I was there for 152 days. I nearly took my own life. Uh, Kidney infection almost took my life. Uh, It was every single day was some form of abuse, whether it was being trafficked or sport torture or whatever. And this is somebody who you met through the thing. They he learned everything about you, and he yeah. still turned out to be the same person. Yeah, I was still avoid. attracting these people, oh. and the reason for that is because I hadn't learned enough about my own emotional maturity to have any kind of healthy boundaries. And right. when people were manipulating me, I saw it as being perfectly normal because this oh. is how I grew up. This is what I had experienced my whole life. I didn't know there was an option for people to be different from that. Mm -hmm. So it was a really awful, ugly place to be. I had been successful for the first time in my life right before this. And I gave it all up to be with him only to have the same things happen. And predators are like that. They will dig down and find what your weaknesses are and find what you're missing and wanting and needing most Mm -hmm. in the world and promise you those things just to be able to get control over you. That's what trafficking is. That's what it looks like. And at this time, you're in your 30s. Right. I was 31 years old the last time I was trafficked. Good memory. (laughs) (laughs) Man, that is some story. So now what you're doing is you're an accomplished artist. You're an author of 
over a dozen books. You're a public speaker. You have three podcasts. And you are a mentor on helping people from their trauma recovery. Yes. And it doesn't stop there. I'm constantly every single day finding some way else that I can contribute to other people who are trying to come through hard times. I don't know how to turn it off. I wouldn't yeah. want to if I could. No. It's you. When you know what's wrong in the world, you want to eliminate it from yeah. the world. And it's Absolutely. not easy because the reach that we have is so limited. No matter how many books we write, no matter how many guest appearances, it's still limited till it's advertised or it's out in the public. Hey, this is, you can't even, I don't even know where to go, but you can't even identify here who, this is the profile of a trafficker. There's no right. such thing. There isn't. No. And that's the thing about why we're being fed so many stereotypes, whether mm. it's movies or the news or whatever it is. We have to start scrutinizing it. We have to start asking the difficult questions. What is it I'm seeing and how is this not the truth? Yeah. Not how does this match up with the truth is how is this not the truth? It was a movie. I won't name it. It was a movie that came out just a few months ago that sensationalized yet again at the scenario of little kids being kidnapped at the border. And that's what trafficking looks like. That is such a small percentage. Because that's a small percentage. And they're like, hey, we can control this. It's It doesn't affect our business. Let's just. Except it lines the pockets of the organization that it was supposedly tied to. Mm. But the organization themselves, they were so angry about it that the movie that it's actually about People think it's about human trafficking. It's not about human trafficking. It is about one man and his perception of how he wants people to see him. Yeah. Is what it's about. They were so upset that they actually broke ties with him and he was the founder of that organization. They said, we can't have you be a part of this anymore because this is wrong. I was so happy to see that. And then he ended up getting sued for some other improprieties, sexual sure. assaults all kinds of nasty stuff. And the truth started coming out and people started saying, now we really don't know what to believe. Mm -hmm. So how much of this actually isn't human trafficking? Yeah. So really the whole message behind what I'm doing is specifically with human trafficking is trying to get people to understand the true definition of human trafficking. It's not something you can look up on Google. It's nope. not something that you can find on Wikipedia. These are fallible resources. You want to go somewhere like the Department of Homeland Security. They define human trafficking as the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain commercial sex acts or labor from another person. Mm -hmm. But if the person is under the age of 18, the force, fraud, and coercion no longer take place. It doesn't matter how they're being made to do these things. If you are obtaining commercial sex acts or labor from another person who's under the age of 18, that's trafficking. But over 18, it's not trafficking. Over 18, it is trafficking, but only okay. if it's by use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain okay. those things. Gotcha. gotcha. And I was frauded into it. And I've had people ask me, how does, what's commercial sex then? If it doesn't equal money, prostitution does not equal human trafficking and vice versa. Yeah. What's the commercialism then here? How do you define commercialism? Mm. Somebody else is obtaining something out of it, right? Yeah. Yep. I was used as a barter chip for that event in Las Vegas. You know, I was given as a gift in exchange for something else that I know nothing about. Yeah. And this was not by my choice. 
I was given to somebody else. This is absolutely human trafficking. And this crisis at the border that we're seeing, people think human trafficking and human smuggling are the same because in our brains, we hear the word traffic, trafficking. We think that means being on the road. If you notice in that definition, there's no mention of transportation of any kind. These are separate issues that all need to be addressed. That's deep. That's powerful. And that's quite a journey. So let's go deep into how you help other survivors of human trafficking. And what are some of the things that people that are being trafficked and listening to this episode? Okay, I see this happening in around me. Maybe that they can point them to, hey, you need to go talk to Amanda. Or because sometimes, like you mentioned, you're locked away in the room. You don't have access to, you, you probably don't have access to communication devices. Right. And that's definitely a struggle. That's a major issue for a lot mm-hmm. of people. Yeah. Another issue is that whole force fraud or coercion thing. When you're talking to somebody that has been trafficked, a lot of times they don't have the ability to reach out for help, even if they have a phone sitting right in front of them. Yeah. yeah. And that's because they have this threat hanging above them. We'll do this to your sister if you tell anybody. Yep. We'll kill your parents if you tell anybody. There's also the one of the most commonly termed, most commonly used terms in this world is the Romeo. They make you believe that they love you and they would do anything for you, mm. but they need you to do this because you've paid for everything. Yeah. So you have to go and do this for me now because I need that money that I've already spent on you. And this is the only way that I can really see of you getting that money quickly enough for me. That happens a lot in mm. this world. And it's a terrible place. So one of the things that I love to do is it started out with just survivors of trafficking, but now it's survivors of all traumas. People who are dealing with traumas need to start to understand their brains are forever changed. Trauma builds these neural pathways in our brains. We have altered behaviors that we need to address. We will forever be that new person. So one of the things that I talk about right off the bat is how trauma mirrors the stages of grief. You go through denial, Mm -hmm. anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, just like you do with grief. And that's because you have to grieve for the person that you were going to be. That person died. That person is gone and will never be again. Once you get through the grieving process is when you can start the healing process. When you're going through the healing process, when you're going through the grieving process, nothing is linear. You're going to bounce all over the place. You're going to feel Mm -hmm. all of this stuff, sometimes all at the same time. So you have to recognize what your trauma triggers are. And these are real things, not just buzzwords that people are throwing around on social media. And your trauma triggers are going to be things that are going to remind you of a painful memory, or they're going to throw you back into this memory where you're reliving it. We call this a flashback. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand what those things are so that you can address them. You can rewire your brain to have healthier reactions to these things. And I can help people to do that. I'm not a therapist, so I can't help them with talk therapy or EMDR or tapping or any of those things. But I can help them to take more control of their own trauma recovery by recognizing it for what it is and addressing it one piece at a time. I love it. So you can see what they're going through. 
and you can say, hey, these are the actions you should take or talk therapy is when the person who's traumatized is the one talking. They tell their whole story. Mm. And sometimes if you're a trauma survivor like myself, you can put yourself in danger by hearing somebody go into explicit detail on some of right. the traumas that they themselves have experienced. So I try not to do that to trigger, myself. Right. Trigger. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It can cause regression for somebody yes. like me too. And I want to avoid that at all cost. All so right. we have to recognize these different trauma reactions. We have to understand that they have long-term consequences if we don't deal with them. And we have to retrain our brains to have healthier responses to them. One of my greatest examples is we have a need for control. This is one of the strongest trauma reactions out there. Mm. But we cannot control everything in our lives just because something went wrong in the past. This is never going to be possible no matter yeah. how hard we try or how mm-hmm. many people that we throw in the, under the bus trying to get there. We've seen it happen in Back to the Future when you try to change the future. <laughs> I mean, exactly. it's, not, it's impossible. <laughs> yeah, you just can't do it. Yeah. And it's like the, the butterfly that flaps its wings in Japan causes a tsunami. Yeah. As you, this isn't going to be a possibility. It's like sitting in the back of a bus and expecting to hit the hit, miss all the potholes on the road, especially here in Colorado. That ain't going to happen. No, there's potholes not, everywhere. Because you're not driving. <laughs> but there are little things that you can control. And you want to grab a hold of those and use those to help retrain your brain. So one of the best and easiest ways to do this is to find an art form. You can try writing. You can try writing poetry, painting, drawing, cooking. These are all really amazing creative outlets where you have 100% control over what it is that you're doing at that moment. You can use this to express yourself. You can use this to tell a story. I have a painting that I have hanging up behind me in my office. I absolutely love this thing. It just keeps me grounded mm-hmm. to remind myself of where I am and how far I've come. I have my books that I've, I cannot stop writing no matter how hard I try. But I didn't publish my first book until 2018 mm-hmm. after I had gotten out of trafficking. Yeah, I've got 13 books now. My most recent was a cookbook. So there's that cooking element too. Mm-hmm. You can measure how much flour or egg or vanilla goes into something. You can't control somebody else's attitude towards you or towards something that you've done or told them. Yeah. You have to find the things that you can control and explore them in ways that help you to release those inner emotions on the the triggers and everything else that's going to come up. Absolutely. I love that because it is impossible to control anybody, even your kids. You cannot control them, none of of that stuff. But you can control what you do in any situation and how you react to it. So I love that. And that painting is definitely beautiful. I think you told me about it, how it's a person standing at the ledge and there's a tree at the end of it giving you shade or even saying, hey, you don't need to jump off. It's almost like that song. What was that song? It's... I can't remember the song right now, but it's by Three Doors, not Three Doors Down, by Goo Goo Dolls. If you don't want to be my friend, don't jump off the ledge. I can't remember, but I know that Jim Carrey sang that song in the Yes Man movie when this kid was on this ledge and he's like singing this song so he wouldn't jump off. Do you remember that? So the the month after I got back from Scotland, less than a month later, Mm -hmm. I hung out with Jim Carrey. You hung out with Jim Carrey. 
Shut I did. He, he asked my phone number at a 4th of July party. And yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of people out there. If they were at that party, they remember that moment. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so and this is totally a side tangent, but yeah. we were at this party and I was talking to this lady about a hat that she had made herself. She had put all these rhinestones on it to make the flag. Mm. And I just thought it was cute. And my, I have an adopted family and my adopted brother reached over and tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hey, Amanda, there's somebody over here that wants to talk to you. And I said, yeah, give me just a second. I'm, let me finish my conversation with her and I'll be right with you. I had no idea that it was Jim Carrey asking to speak <laughs> with me. He, the whole reason that he had crossed the, over to the wall to come to this party was because he had seen me and wanted to know me. He had a thing for redheads, always has. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I continued my conversation with this later. Finally, I got up and I stood, turned around and my brother's standing there and he's Amanda, this is Jim. Jim, this is my sister. Hi. <laughs> 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 Every tooth in his head sparkled like a white chiclet that just came out of the box. Yeah. Remember chiclets? Oh my gosh. His teeth are gorgeous. And his, he looks so gangly when he's in these films because he tries to be. Yeah. He has one of the prettiest smiles I've ever seen in person he in does. my life. Amazing. Yeah. So if we had a good lung chat. He got my number. <laughs> wow. Check that out from the painting to the Jim Carrey. That's, if there's no, like, there's a story right there. I love it. <laughs> so as you go and you're helping people with their trauma recovery, being their mentor and guiding them into a much better future because they can't control the past. They can control the now and they have to get over the grief of letting go of the person that they thought they were going to be, but they are going to be a better version of whoever they are now. They're going to grow through that. Yes. And it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard because growing is hard. Have you seen seedling pop open and the tree, the little plant come out of that? It's hard work to break that open. Let's take a quick break. And when you get back, you're going to share three hacks that entrepreneurs, people listening can implement in their lives. So they are closer to being trauma-free than they were before they started listening to the episode. Finding the right guest or podcast can feel like searching for a needle in a haystack, unless you bring a magnet. And thanks to Podmatch, a service that automatically attracts your ideal interview guests to your podcast. I've enjoyed using Podmatch for hacks and hobbies and interviewed over a hundred fantastic guests from this platform alone. Head on over to hacksandhobbies.com forward slash Podmatch to save time and find your perfect match. Check out Podmatch today. Again, go to hacksandhobbies.com forward slash podmatch or tap on the link in the show notes. Hey guys, welcome back. We've been talking with Amanda Blackwood, her amazing story and journey around surviving human trafficking, being the author of a dozen books, speaking on international summits. She's done some amazing things and she's not going to stop because she knows firsthand what it is what it feels like to be used, to be abused. And I'm, I'm so grateful for her to be here on the episode and sharing her journey and being so vulnerable to just to show that, hey, there is a possibility. There is a brighter tomorrow. And thank you so much, Amanda. 
Thank you so much, Junaid. It's such a pleasure to be here with you, honestly. It's so much fun. All right. So you have three hacks for us to share that we can implement in our lives to see and we could maybe see if in our surroundings we see somebody who might be going through something and there maybe there's some pointers that you can get so we can say, hey, you might want to talk to this person. You might want to talk to Amanda. You might want to look into what's going on. So for the people who are trying to get through some stuff themselves, and let's be honest, that's all of us, mm-hmm. there are some really easy hacks that we can implement to really help us every single day of our lives. Yes. Yeah. And it's more than just focusing on taking breaks and setting things into smaller steps and and breaking things down. You want to set clear and achievable goals. And what I mean by that, yes, breaking it down makes it more achievable, but you want to make sure that it is clear, define it. What is it that you're trying to accomplish? And you can't just say something like, I'm trying to recover from the past. That's what we're all trying to do. I want to have a healthier relationship with my spouse. That is a clear and achievable goal. Something very specific. You also want to cultivate a positive mindset, and that can be very difficult for people who are not automatically optimistic people. Mm -hmm. But this is really important to do because this is what's going to help you to really retrain your brain. Yeah. Yeah. You want to focus on your progress. This is a struggle for a lot of people. When you're recovering from something, when you've been through something that's absolutely awful, it can be really hard to realize how far you've come. One bad day a year after the disaster, one bad day can make you feel like you have regressed all the way back through everything as far as you've come. So a big hack here is to write down when something good happens. Write it down, put it in a vase, in a jar, whatever you've got handy. And when you have those days where things feel like they're absolutely falling apart, you cannot remember why you're continuing on, why you're still fighting, pull those out and read them. You will remember how far you've come and all the good things that you've accomplished since then. You will remember to be proud of yourself and it will help you to have that positive mindset once again. I love that. It's so important to have the positive mindset because it's almost like turning off the stove and expecting your food to cook. Yeah. Positive mindset is turning that fire on. Yeah. Yeah. I love the way you put that. (laughs) I'm in this cooking analogy apparently today. So, you know, (laughs) it works for me. I love to cook. Might be the cookbook (laughs) that you mentioned. All right. Next hack. So the next one is you want to make sure that you don't neglect self-care. A lot of people think self-care sounds selfish Mm -hmm. and that's not it at all. So self-care is really important because, how do I put this the easiest way possible? I was a flight attendant for a little while. I spent two years, three months, 28 days on a flight, on flights. Not that I was counting. No, but being a flight counting. attendant, <laughs> being a flight attendant was one of the greatest experiences, but it taught me all about self-care in ways that I wouldn't have known otherwise. Mm. When those masks drop during a, a pressure breach, on the aircraft, they always tell you to apply your own mask before applying somebody else's. And that's for a very good reason. If you can't breathe, you cannot reach out to help somebody else Mm -hmm. breathe. 
If you're not taking care of yourself through forms of self-care, you're not going to be functional enough to take care of your family. You're not going to be giving yourself the energy that you need to be able to cook meals for your entire family or to go for a walk or to take a break when you need it. You have to do this stuff. Self-care is not about being selfish. It's about being self-aware. Self-care equals self-aware. Love it. And the last hack. Never compare yourself to someone else. Oh my journey. God, but I do that all the time, but they have it better than me. <laughs> Everybody does at some point. Yes. I finally stopped doing that for the most part, but I still have, I still struggle with it myself. So I have to remind mm. myself, but when it comes to comparing yourself, how do you compare yourself to other people? For people with trauma, we compare traumas. Mm. We do what I call trauma trophies. I did this. I got this, I got this, I got this. Yeah. And traumas are never a competition or a destination. Because traumas change our brain completely, they alter who we are. They have altering behaviors. Never come to somebody and say, oh, what you've been through is so much worse than what I've been through. Mm. Because it's not. No matter what it is that somebody else has been through, it's not worse. It's not better. It's just different. If it changes who you are at the very core of your being, it is a terrible thing. Yeah. Let it be that terrible thing that it has to be. It is not to compare to somebody else. It is to remind you of what's possible next. I love that. Wow. That's so powerful. It's almost like saying that, just be yourself because everybody else is taken. But then also, you cannot compare a baby dancing to a five-year-old dancing or a 15-year-old dancing because they have that years of experience to bring to the table. Yeah. And it's a beautiful thing when you can get together in a room full of other people who have survived traumas and recognize that it's not a competition at all. Yeah, it's not. If anything... It's a bonding experience and you're now family. I love that. Amanda, this has been a ton of fun. I appreciate you taking the time to come and being a guest on the podcast. But before we go, the last of the show is our rapid fire questions. Number one, what is the one hobby that you wish you got into? Dance. I wanted to be a dancer so badly. (laughs) I couldn't (laughs) afford it when I was a kid. Now I just feel like I'm too old. <laughs> I don't think you're ever too old to take up a new hobby. That's Hang just on. me saying because I'm thinking about learning how to fly. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Next up, what did you want to be when you were a child? A butterfly. And I know that sounds really weird. <laughs> <laughs> but this was a legit question when I was in kindergarten. I said, yeah. I wanted to be a butterfly. And she said, you can't be a butterfly when you grow up. And I cried and said, you told me I could be anything. Mm-hmm. Why can't I be a butterfly? Yeah. So I became a flight attendant. I got my wings and I got through some serious trauma. If that's not a butterfly, I don't know what is. Yes, you are. I love it. <laughs> Next up, what is your favorite movie or TV show? 1941, The Lady Eve with Barbara Stanwyck and Henry Fonda. I love this movie and I will never not love this movie. It's wonderful. Awesome. I love it. Next up, 
what movie would you choose if you got to play a character in it? Ooh. Oh, that is such a hard one. I think I would want to play Vera Ellen in White Christmas. Wow, that's very specific. Most people don't even know how to answer that question. <laughs> but now you're really specific, which is really good, which means what you want, who you are. Yeah. Dancing with Danny Kay? Come on, man. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> and Bing Crosby. Oh, I just yes. wouldn't want to be his love interest as much as I loved the man. I couldn't do that. <laughs> they say don't meet your hot heroes, right? I got to keep a little distance. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Two more. Next up, who is your favorite superhero? Oof. He's not known by anybody else in the world, but my husband. My That's husband so is cool. my superhero. But really, outside of that, Shazam. Shazam, come on. Doesn't love Shazam. Oh, my gosh. A kid getting him. a superhero power <laughs> that makes him an adult? Come on. And a kid in the foster care system at that. He's <sighs> in the foster care system for a while. I know what that's like. I identified with that kid. I want to be a hero just like him. Yeah. I love it. Thank you, Amanda, for your wisdom, your sharing. And the last question is, if you were a board game, what would it be? At one time, I would have said sorry. That's not me anymore. Probably more like Battleship these days. <laughs> <laughs> Taking you down. I love it. Thank you so much again, Amanda. Where can my superpreneurs find you and listen more from you? I would say head over to growthfromdarkness.com. Not only is that my website where you can find links to the different interviews that I've done, like this one, uh, but you'll also find links to my other social media programs, my boot camps that I have coming up all next year, all kinds of really cool stuff. So that's growthfromdarkness.com. I love it. Thank you so much again. And I look forward to continuing our friendship into the new year. Thanks so much, Amanda. Thank you, Junaid. Congratulations. You made it to the end of the episode. Thanks so much for listening to our guest on this episode. Please send me an email at junaid at hacksandhobbies.com to tell me what you loved about our guest today. You could find links mentioned in this episode on the hacksandhobbies.com website. 